0: So last, last week I was talking about the, uh, the metaphor of the guest house again, and, um, and today I want to spend a bit more time on what we might call the Lord of the house or the, uh, the true self. Um, it's hard to talk about the true self but also without talking about the, uh, the self-centered self. Or the false self. Um, there's all different ways of talking about it. Um, what I like about the, uh, the, the practice reading that we just read, What is Our Life About? Um, by uh, Ezra Bader, who's a teacher based in San Diego, um, is um, you know, it's, it's very much for, uh, so, it's in really simple language. Um, talking about the nature of our being as connectedness and love and not the illusion of the separate self to which our suffering clings. But as we've talked about um, in previous weeks, The illusion of the separate self is a necessary illusion, as in, and we've we've spoken about developmental psychology, and um, at a certain point, uh, it's necessary for the the infant and child to um, develop a sense of an objective self, and. Uh, And this is the, you know, the creation of the personal self. And um, so it's inevitable that we all identify with um, this uh, small I, if you like. And we identify with this self-centered self as, as if it is the center. The, the process of practice, in a sense, in terms of awakening to the true self of who we truly are, is a kind of process of uh, uh, decentering, if you like, from the, the, the self-centred self, um, to awaken to the true self. and. Um, But this necessary step in our development, the creation of the sense of a separate self, um, obviously sets us up to to suffer. Uh, why is that? Well, we obviously we have a, a self and another, and um, and. Uh, as we soon learn, I guess, through the identification with our bodies and with our separate self, we can experience all those very difficult emotions that we've talked about, such as shame and fear. The will um, just read you a little um, story about a young boy. It was, um, this is from a book by a, a Jungian therapist called uh, Mario Jacoby. The most traumatic experiences of shame usually occur in childhood and often leave a sense of emotional defeat that persists for the rest of one's life. For example, a 55-year-old man strongly disliked cherries because they reminded him of a shameful mishap that took place when he was 10 years old and on a school field trip. His mother, not thinking, had given him cherries to take with him, even though it is common knowledge that cherries, in combination with water from the drinking fountain, often caused diarrhea. On the way home in the train, this combination did its work rather suddenly. All the available toilets were occupied at the crucial moment, and so, with an awful burst, the accident came to pass as the boy stood right in the middle of the aisle of the train. In a flash he disappeared into a small water closet that had become vacant. And even after arriving at the final stop of the journey, could not be persuaded to open the door and come out, despite the teacher's insistent knocking, threatening, pleading, and promising. At length he was extracted by a railroad worker armed with a key, and so there was no mercy for the boy, nor any way to avoid the feared running of the gauntlet. The entire class had waited for him, and as he emerged from the train, taunted him with cries of, "Hoffen scheisse! dirty pants, scardy pants. When he arrived home in his soiled, stinking pants, his mother immediately launched into an abusive diatribe, bewailing the terrible disgrace he had brought on the family, and then stuck him contemptuously in the bathtub. The next day, he refused to go to school. Though the teacher forbade anyone to use the name Hossen Chaser whenever laughter broke out in the classroom, The boy immediately imagined that his classmates were entertaining themselves at his expense. Soon he went to a new school and was able to let down his guard. But in the back of his mind, he feared his new schoolmates might be initiated into the secret of his disgrace by someone from his former, knowing class. For years to come, this man continued to regard himself as a hoshenscheiser, a crippling blow to his self-esteem. To this day, the memory of the event is still linked with feelings of humiliating embarrassment. Now, these kinds of events are are very common, maybe not so extreme as happened to this boy, but all of us have had some kind of experience like that in our lives. And in the kind of way in which the boy locked himself in the closet uh, to escape um, the terrible sense of being exposed and shamed like that that he uh, you know in a sense what we try and do then is to lock those kinds of memories away and compartmentalize them as best we can and um, what tends to happen and there are different names for this Um, there are more academic psychological names but the name I kind of like at the moment is that um, when we 're talking of our personal self, it's, um, it's, it's, it's very helpful to think of it being multiple parts and um, and a lot of these early childhood events that were very traumatizing for us become compartmentalized away, and uh, they're kind of like um, we, we do our best to to exile them. But they remain the, that they're very close to the the core of our being. But um, we um, we develop other uh, parts that are uh, we could we could call protective parts, and uh, these protective parts do their best to um, ensure that um, they monitor the internal and the external environment to to, to try and. Uh, Guard against ever being, uh, you know, having an experience like that again. But sometimes things will, uh, uh, will trigger these memories and um, could be a, again an inadvertent um, uh, situation which, which triggers that memory and that exile part becomes what we call activated and breaks out and those. Those horrible emotions come back again. Uh, maybe not so intensely, but it varies depending on the degree of the. For example, if it was post-traumatic stress disorder, and it was a, a veteran returning, and they had a flashback, then the, the flashback can feel as as real as it was it was as it was when it was happening. Um, but uh, to varying degrees, we get these these memories. These parts can be triggered. And then these these other kinds of um, protective parts, which are more impulsive, are then brought into action. Like a firefighter, they try and put out the fire as quickly as they can. And um, these parts vary from person to person, and uh, could be a return to alcohol or drugs, or um, we um, just try and. Um, Remove ourselves in some way from that memory to numb it out again, put it back into its box. Some people hurt themselves to do that to distract themselves from that and other um, others keep we keep ourselves very busy sometimes and we do our best. Um, The, 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 this also is kind of like um, in a more... I, don't remember, I remember once um, meeting with a, a, a man who was um, in palliative care. And um, he could see him moving from these different parts of so, surfaces. So sometimes it's just the memory that grabs you as well. It can be like a nice memory sometimes. But like a, certainly, like I was talking to him, and he was in his angry part and uh, fearful part. Then um, there was a, a VW Combi drove past, and that brought back a really kind of um, very uh, a memory of youth and and uh, very pleasant memory, and his face lit up in a smile, and and then it shifted again when he realised that that was. Uh, that youth could never be regained again, and got back in touch with the reality. It didn't have very long left to live, and came very sad at again. It was this very quick shifting from one feeling to another feeling, very quickly. And um, so, in a sense, um, when we talk about attachment in Zen, um, our identification—it's we—we um, have this. Tendency to attach to these memories, to these parts, or identify with them, and that's when we, when we, when we say "core" in the self-centered dream, or holding to the self-centered core. These are the metaphors that are around attachment to these, um, this, this constant flow of uh, uh, the inner life and the personal self. Now. at other times we are aware of an ability to actually step back a little bit and be aware of this stream of consciousness. Um, And uh, in our Zen practice we actually cultivate that sense of being an observer-self, and um, in a way it's that that cultivation of um, being the witness or being the observer to this constant flow of what's happening moment by moment. that enables us to um, to start to, uh, in a way, disidentify and not get so attached to this these these parts and these memories and these emotions that are constantly flowing. And um, and we do that to the best of our ability. Sometimes, if it's a, a really intense kind of emotional reaction, sometimes it's really hard to maintain an observation of that. But. Part of our practice is to try and do that on an everyday basis. And uh, so in our everyday life, we do our best to try and observe those patterns of emotional reactions and try to get to know our parts as best as we can, and how they get activated and what situations they get activated in. And... um, But the true self is really... You know, it's very um, different to a part. And uh, and I guess part of the, one of the ways, I mean, in Zen we often talk about the one and the many, or equality and difference. The sense in which the flower is just beautifully, uniquely itself and expressing everything. The oneness of the universe beautifully expressed in the flower, but the flower is totally unique and patterned. An individual and in particular, and in the same way, so that the, 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 the true self, which is everything, which is um, who we truly are, is also uniquely expressed in each one of us. As is it, um, almost like this the idea of the another no, wave and particle idea in physics, like there's the the wave being the universe, and then. We are that universe, and we are a particular particle that also expresses that true self and part of our Zen practice is to the uh, how do we how do we integrate that into our personal self? How is the personal self transformed through realizing this this true self and um, sometimes these experiences of the true self can be quite earth shattering moments and other times it's just a more gradual process of um, doing the practice, observing the thoughts, observing the emotions, stepping back, you know, shining the light within, shining the light within. Um, Because it's not possible for us to observe the observer. It's not possible for us to observe our true self. It's like asking the sun to observe itself. In some way the sun and the planets is a nice kind of metaphor because we, we identify with, you know, we, we, we see ourselves as if we are the earth and the, the sun's revolving around us or everything's revolving around us. It's like we need to do that Copernican revolution within ourselves so that we actually um, align ourselves more with the sun which is our true self and um, and start to see that these little parts that are orbiting the sun are not who we truly are. but when we totally identify with those parts, we forget all about the sun and we take those parts to be who we truly are in the heat of the moment. Um, there was a, um, it was an 18th century Zen teacher called Benke, um, he was a bit like Joe Beck in the sense he tried to simplify and popularize Zen and bring it out more to the popular people. And he had a very simple teaching he taught um, in um, this introduction here, I'll just read it to you. Banké's entire teaching can be reduced to the single admonition, abide in the unborn. This was Banké's constant refrain. The term unborn itself is a common one in classical Buddhism, where it generally signifies that which is intrinsic, original, uncreated. That is, our intrinsic, original self which is uncreated, who we always truly are. This intrinsic original self can never be harmed, can never be injured in any way. And uh, discovering that and uncovering that is the is the task of practice. Because we know that our personal self carries all these burdens of hurt and injury. And in the more we're able to bring the realisation of this other original self into our personal self, the more we can unburden these these old wounds that we've been carrying. Banké, however, was the first to use this term, the unborn, as the the centre of his teaching. Rather than obtaining or practising the unborn, he says, one should simply abide in it because the unborn is not a state that has to be created. Um, We don't sit in order to become a Buddha, we already are Buddha. We don't sit to become enlightened, we already are enlightened. It is already there. This is the jewel, perfect and complete. The mind, just as it is. There isn't any special method for realizing the unborn other than to be yourself, to be totally natural and spontaneous in everything you do easier said than done. This means letting thoughts arise or cease just as they will and doing the same in regard to physical sensations. So, you know, this again, this coming back to this idea that Choko teaches that we just come back as best we can to the physical sensations and to the sounds. And even if we're caught in a part, if we're caught in anxiety or shame, just come back to those physical sensations and see if we can get in touch with that spaciousness of who we truly are in that moment. Another word that's used often to stand in for the true self is the heart mind, and I like the, the heart mind as a, as a as word because, in some sense, it captures that idea of, the, uh, of there being two wings. Um, to the bird, the compassion and wisdom in the sense in which the uh, the more we connect with the heart-mind, the more we're connecting with our innate compassion and wisdom. Um, so when we're dwelling in the uh, heart-mind, the True Self, the wisdom part, and I'm simplifying this, that, I think, but the wisdom part is um, it's just that Abiding in just the sound, uh, just the sensation. and th- There's no way to actually abide because it's constantly changing all the time. So in a sense you're abiding in that which is constantly changing. You're abiding in that sort of process of constant change. Everything is moving and changing and we're just abiding in that. Just this, just this. Ooh, the wind on the cheeks, the sound of the earth. This is wisdom in action, just abiding in that. And that's the spaciousness, that's the sense of when we chant the Heart Sutra, that's the boundlessness. Or sometimes boundlessness is translated as emptiness, sometimes it's translated as bound, boundlessness. But that sense of spaciousness. That sense in which when the, uh, the Emperor Wu asks Bodhidharma, who is this person standing before me? And Bodhidharma says, I don't know. So that sense is... The True Self cannot know itself in that sense because it's boundless, it's infinite. It can't step outside itself and look at itself. Um, We just rest in that un- not knowing in that boundlessness that 's the wisdom part the the heart part is the compassion part opening the, the heart mind, opening the compassion part is the sense in which when we are able to just be with what is and get in touch with that self within the compassion naturally arises we feel a greater sense of connectedness. Um, with all beings, because the, the veil of separation is starting to come down. And um, comp- all those qualities of compassion, we can then express them in our everyday life. The courage to be ourselves, the empathy for others, the desire to respond as best we can uh, to the situation as it arises just trusting and in, in responding from that centre, that place of self, place of wisdom and compassion. And bringing that, bringing that acceptance to all our different parts, getting to, getting to relate to our parts in all, from that compassionate place, allowing those parts to free them from me compartments that are being locked in and release their burdens as best we can. And each time we, we do this practice and we come to these kinds of retreats and we do our practice at home and we remind ourselves to come back. All that, we're just planting the seeds, planting the seeds of awakening the heart-mind all the time. There's a um, and we bring this into our everyday life. And Joko has a chapter in one of his, his second book called "The Sound of a Dove and the Sound of a Critical Voice." Okay, so the, you know we're doing our practice as the sound of a dove. <coughs> and we can become abide in that. You know we can become the dove. <coughs> it's lovely, beautiful, spacious. You know we have that sense of joy even naturally arising but what about, you know, we the meditation period ends, we go to work or we go to meet our, our partner and, hey, you forgot the, you forgot the shopping, How you, why did you forget the shopping? We get the critical voice, can we relate to the critical voice in the same way as we relate to the dove, the sound of the dove? And it's at that point that's that's the, that's the that's the that's the edge where you can get some sense of how much your practice is kicking in. Does you know. the critical voice send you to that does it trigger a reaction? And if it, and just see if you can observe the reaction as it arises. Do your best to be observing rather than be caught in it. And allow it to allow it to arise and feel it in the body. And see if there's any judgments coming up, years, any fears, any... Uh, that's the practice in the everyday life. Because um, sitting on our cushions is not... if it doesn't show up in our everyday life, then it's not, it's not really worth doing. We want to bring, um, bring that heart-mind into the world because the world badly needs it in every little way that we can possibly do. And, um, and time is fleeting, so don't hold back. Appreciate this precious life. Thank you.